Hello there and welcome to Defiance. I'm your host Peter McCormack. I hope you are doing well out there. We are certainly living in very strange times, very tough times for everyone. Today I've got an interview with an old school friend, Dr. James. I've known him for over 25 years. He works in an ICU ward at one of London's NHS wards. Now the impact of the coronavirus has been huge. It is unprecedented as an event in my lifetime and probably for most people listening to this show. In reporting about coronavirus, there are many who believe this is just the flu and that the government lockdowns are a significant overreaction. So while others argue over the models and how this may all play out, I've personally been following two data points. The increase in daily deaths and the reports from frontline medical staff coming from inside the most overrun cities and hospitals, so Wuhan, Italy, Madrid and London. And what I've found is universally the reports from the staff are the same. And this for me is a very useful data point for analysing the impact of what is happening. Now, I understand a lot of people disagree with this and disagree with the government, but I think as a representation of what the show Defiance is, there's nothing really more defiant than people going to work every day dealing with this crisis, knowing they may face getting sick themselves, and from what has happened in Italy, where people have been dying, that there is a significant risk to both themselves and their families. Yesterday I reached out to Dr James, he is an old school friend of mine, he works in one of London's busiest ICUs and I just wanted to initially ask him a few questions and then I asked him if he wanted to come on the show. He said he would but he asked to stay anonymous so please do respect this. If you've got any feedback about this show please do feel free to reach out to me, my email address is peter at defiance.news. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient, resolute, defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Good evening, Dr. James. How are you? Yeah, not not bad, Pete. Um, good to talk to you. I've obviously known you for quite a long time, probably 25, maybe 25 years, maybe a bit longer. And obviously, I know you're a doctor. Um, and thank you for giving up your time, because obviously, yeah, you're very busy right now. Um, but I think it's gonna be very useful to talk to you about what's happening and get some of this information out there. So just as a starting point, can you just explain to people what it is your day to day job and role before we get into this? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a NHS consultant in anaesthetics and intensive care. So I split my time usually uh, between running a, an intensive care unit at a big, busy NHS hospital and also putting patients to sleep for various types of operations of late, given uh, given what's been happening um, with COVID, uh, all of my time has been dedicated to intensive care for the last sort of two to three weeks. Essentially, it's been an extremely busy and challenging time for us. Okay, so you're right in the heart of what's happening right now. Before we get into that, can you just talk me through what a, a standard day would have been like two months ago? Just a very quick overview of a standard day for you. 
Yeah, so so from an intensive care perspective, I would probably turn up to work at about 8am, touch base with uh, the junior doctors that I work with, um, and then run run a ward round of about 10 to 11 patients that we have on intensive care. There would be uh, me, me sort of running the team. I'd probably have four to five junior doctors helping me look after those 10 or 11 patients who are critically unwell, some of the most unwell patients within the hospital, and they'd often be on various life support machines, ventilators, um, kidney dialysis machines, and they'd often be in uh, medically induced comas. So, so sick patients who need lots and lots of staff around to look after them. So as well as the, the, uh, the, the doctors, the, these patients would often have um, at least one nurse um, per patient uh, looking after them around the clock. So that's what we do. We do a ward round in the morning. We'd review all of the patients uh, in the afternoon. We'd do various jobs that uh, need to be done for the patients. So scans, procedures, uh, reviews by other teams. And then we'd go around and see those patients again in the evening just to make sure that um, they're stable. And essentially, we're, we're, we're taking them through a process of critical illness. Uh, we have sort of all comers come to us. So patients um, who've had major operations and need uh, a period of critical care after their operations to get them better and get them well enough to rehab and then leave the hospital. Or it could be patients who have come in with severe infections, with sepsis, and need life support to get them through um, critical infection. Or it could be patients with kidney failure who need temporary dialysis. So we, we see a whole, a whole variety of patients. And it's a very labour-intensive job uh, with sort of uh, probably the most labour-intensive part of the hospital. And that's because we're dealing with generally the sickest patients around. So our job is to get them through their critical illness, get them out of intensive care to either a medical or a surgical ward bed, and then for them to get out of hospital um, eventually. And in a in that kind of scenario, what a, when does it get stressful? When does it do you have to plan for certain scenarios? Uh, surge planning is something you've mentioned to me before. What is a normal? abnormal situation if you understand the question yeah so we're a big busy place and um one of the most stressful things is is bed occupancy so um we like to run at about an 80 percent bed occupancy so if you've got 10 beds it's always good to have no more than eight of those filled so that at any one time if there's a disaster in A&E or a disaster in the operating theatres or on the wards you've got the ability to bring patients in quickly unfortunately given given the circumstances we work work under our, our occupancy in normal conditions tends to be 90% or 100% um, or even more than that. Sometimes we have patients on the wards waiting to come in. A lot of that is to do with the way that um, critical care bed provision uh, has historically um, sort of been set up in the UK. Um, there's been data flying around uh, in the mainstream media showing that compared to other European countries and other other international countries, we have a far lower intensive care bed provision per capita population than, than many uh, other EU countries. So we're, we're constantly under strain. And that's one of the most stressful parts of my job is trying to, trying, to, trying to have beds available so that I can get patients in quickly should they need. 
Should there be an emergency incident and you are running at 80, 90, 100% occupancy and suddenly you need five more beds, what suddenly happens in a scenario like that? Do you have to make beds available or are you distributing people through different hospitals in London? So um, ordinarily we, we will have one or two patients who are ready to go to the ward, but because hospitals are so full, um, those ward beds might not become available um, to us. So in in um, situations of strain, our bed managers can create those beds so that we can get patients who are ready to leave out and get new patients in. In, in the event that we've got uh, an intensive care unit full of patients that actually need to be in there, then we can call around to local hospitals and get patients transferred out to other hospitals to, to, to make capacity um, if required. Or we've got alternatives to sort of uh, creating a sort of temporary intensive care unit potentially in, um, in the operating theatres Getting, getting patients onto ventilators there whilst we uh, create the, the bed on intensive care. So that's sort of a temporary thing that we, you might look to do for sort of no longer than six to 12 hours, really, um, with a view to getting your patient into intensive care at the earliest opportunity. Okay. All right. So now a bit of a switch. Tell me what today was like. Um, okay. So today uh, I turned up to work at eight o'clock. And we had a handover meeting um, that consisted of, uh, who did we have in the room? We had three intensive care consultants coming off the night shift. We had three intensive care consultants coming onto the day shift. They were supported by two further anaesthetic consultants on the day shift and a whole host of junior doctors, probably about... 20 junior doctors who are supporting us a very big handover um, and the reason for the increase in staffing numbers is because we've we've got huge numbers of patients um, being ventilated all over the hospital because of COVID-19 so we've we have um, approximately double the amount of ventilated patients we would ever have under normal circumstances um, in our hospital. Um, so not only do we have patients ventilated in our intensive care units, we've got them ventilated in the operating theatres, we've got them ventilated in the recovery areas, we've moved out into um, ward areas and we're ventilating patients there. So you, you, you need a, an incredible amount of manpower um, to, to manage all of these patients. So after our morning handover, we've split off uh, into about four different teams and we are looking after um, groups of patients in various areas of the hospital. Um, and my job today was also to be what we call the um, outreach consultant. So not only was I looking after 12 intensive care patients, I was also manning a team of doctors who were being called to sick patients in the emergency department and on the wards. And uh, we had uh, a huge amount of calls for patients on the wards in the emergency department who um, have got severe respiratory failure um, related to COVID-19 disease, who are uh, at extreme risk who ideally need an intensive care or high dependency level of care 
um, but are on the wards um, uh, and are very vulnerable. So I spent most of my day going from ward to ward, trying to figure out who needed to come into intensive care. Because we're absolutely full, we've also had to rely on um, some of our neighbouring hospitals to come and pick up our patients and take them away from us. They're slightly less busy than us um, with this, so we're relying on the network of of our neighbouring hospitals to, to come and take patients away from us and just try and take take some of the strain off us to, to decompress us, to try and create a bit more capacity in our place so that when the next patient comes through ED, we've got, we've got a bed to put them in. So um, it's been stressful and I've sort of lost count of um, how many patients I've, I've had to see and uh, how many beds I've had to try and create. It's been, um, yeah, it's been, it's been hard work. Are you at the point now, I mean, I'm guessing you are, but are you at the point now where people aren't getting the care they require because you haven't got enough beds, enough ventilators and enough staff? Um, yes, uh, I, th- I think we're under no delusions that we're, we're working. Uh, it's a different it's a different landscape that we're working in. So um, we, we know that um you know, these patients are not getting the type of care that we would have been giving four weeks ago. And, that, and that's, that's, um, that's uh, mainstream uh, knowledge. You know, we, it's out there in the press that, uh, that you know, we, we know that our numbers are, are not going to be able to cope with the barrage of patients we've got. So uh, I said earlier that usually one intensive care nurse would look after one of these patients. Um, we are expecting our nurses now to look after six of these patients. So you have one trained nurse looking after six ventilated patients. Um, as a consultant, um, I've been told that soon I'll be expected to look after anywhere between 30 and 40 patients, uh, whereas ordinarily I would look after 10 to 12. So, so clearly... You know these patients aren't getting aren't getting the attention that they would have got previously. But, but quite simply, I, the, the, there's nothing else we can do really. Um, of course, we just of course, don't, yeah. We just don't have the, um, the the workforce to sort of to, to cope with this. So, you know, our, our standards are, are going to have to change, and that, that's what we're seeing very much so at the moment. Yeah, and listen, look, I don't think there's going to be anyone listening to this or externally who's going to judge you on this. But I, I, I have got to ask some some tough questions as well. So, for example, you know, look, I know you, so I can ask you these questions. Are you in the position now or are you having to prepare and put in procedures in place where you're going to have to make decisions about who can have certain equipment? And are people, and this is a really tough question, but... Are you going to have to leave people in a position where they're possibly going to have to die because a ventilator has to go to somebody else? Are we in that position yet? Is that coming? Because the reason I ask is that I spoke to an ICU doctor in Australia. They're behind us, but they're planning their triage at the moment for wartime triage. Yeah. Is that yeah. something that's going to happen? So there's always been an element of this in intensive care and in the NHS in general. So, you know, um, 
there aren't an unrestricted number of transplants out there. So there, there's some sort of, of um, you know, you have to decide who's going who's gonna to benefit the most from what's out there. And we do this in intensive care usually. You know, as I said, that, that there are strains, we have a limited resource and we have to pick the patients who are going to benefit the most from our resource. Um, right now, this is this 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 has been you know multiplied tenfold um if not more um we're not officially we're not officially at the stage where we are are restricting access to ventilators based on parameters things like age you know that's a that's a big topic should mm-hmm. we be saying if you if you're over 80 for example should should you be getting a ventilator we're not at that stage now but I, I sense we it will be coming. It will be coming soon. Um, it's 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 an it's got to come from um, up high. I think so. Are there are a number of national bodies that are looking at this, um, and I think uh, the guidance will come soon to us, where we'll be given criteria on which will help us make decisions on who should be getting these ventilators and who who won't be getting them. It's, it's a difficult it's a difficult uh, conversation to have, and you know I think society as a whole needs to have a look at look at this. It's not just us as as medical practitioners who should be making these decisions, but you know I think there's a broader role for society to be involved in the discussion. But but look, it, it's coming, it's coming. There's no doubt about it. Well, what is the daily pace of of ch- change you're seeing? Because we had a pre call, we had a talk through this, and you kind of gave me some idea that kind of you had a few people come through the door and then suddenly the hospital was overrun what is the daily pace of change your experience and it, yeah. is it overwhelming talk me through that yeah it's, it's overwhelming. As i said to you earlier so it's, it's actually two weeks ago today that this really kicked off kicked off for us and um i was i was running our covid icu two weeks ago when uh, we started getting calls from the emergency department and I went down there and it was just like a completely different um, a planet, really. We were getting streams of people coming in with uh, respiratory failure and we had to put a lot of patients on ventilators within the first 24, 48 hours. And just the, the sort of emotion of it all was just completely overwhelming when you when I realized the scale of what was happening and and ever since two weeks ago and I must say it's felt like two months to me the last two weeks but it's just been a relentless relentless just swell of patients coming in through our hospital who need to be put on ventilators and the numbers are getting worse so Look, I, th- I think we're 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 in a hospital where we're putting sort of ten to twelve people on a ventilator a day, and that's that's not sustainable. I, I told you we normally have twenty or so beds uh, in our ICU uh, in in usual conditions, and you know we, we would be filling that up in in less than a couple of days at the rate that we're going. So it's just really. How long do they need? Sorry, how long do they need the ventilator usually for? Yeah, so this this is a difficult question. Um, this disease okay. is this disease is is we haven't come to a consensus internationally what what exactly the the, the disease in the lung uh, is being caused. Um, people are staying on ventilators for longer than than we would anticipate them to do. So uh, 
we're, we're just not sure what we're dealing with. There's no international consensus really on, on, on what's going on. I think people are staying on ventilators. There's no, there's no, you know, clear cut answer, but easily upwards of seven days. And you could be looking at three, four weeks in, in some types of patients. So this is not a quick fix. You know, lots of people will go onto a ventilator and won't survive that process. And they, lots will die on the end of a ventilator. And, and the whole process of, of death with COVID is a, is a, is a completely other, another discussion. You know, this is, um, it's not a nice death to have because uh, many, many hospitals in the country are restricting uh, who can come in to, to see their patients. And actually, lots of places say you, you can't have any visitors. So um, just just yesterday, I, I had to phone one of our patients' um, wives, a lady that I'd never, never met before in my life, never spoken to, and I had to tell her that her husband was dying uh, on the end of a ventilator and that we had to switch off the ventilator because we weren't going to be able to save his life. Um, and I had to do that over, over a telephone call and she wasn't allowed to come and see him or be with him when he died. And it, it's just, you know, we're, we're just dealing with a whole new paradigm here, just emotionally, you know, it's, it's hard, hard work. Um, so yeah, you know, you're on a ventilator, well, who knows how long you're going to be on a ventilator for, you might survive. There's a good chance that you won't survive. Uh, I'm going to make an assumption here. I've never asked you about your training as a doctor, but I'm going to make an assumption as part of your training, you that you deal with the uh, psychological side of of death and communicating that to families. And I'm assuming there's support there during the job, but but I'm also going to ask how is it now? How is it different? How are you coping? How are your colleagues coping with all of this? Uh, talk to me about that. Yeah. Um... So uh, we, we've all cried. We've all we've all cried. You, as I said, you have a moment when you realise the enormity of it, and you 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 can't help but cry. Um, and that I think is actually a good thing. It's it's stressful. Um, people are worried about their own health, particularly my older colleagues. You know, they're they're not immune to this disease. Uh, they're putting themselves at risk. Um, so that's that's one part of the psychological turmoil of this. Um, the other part is obviously dealing with sort of casualties on a mass scale that we haven't seen before. You know, we're not we're not used to having to make these very very tough decisions about, you know, who can get onto a ventilator, how quickly can they get onto a ventilator, are they going to survive on on such a scale, and not being able to deliver the the standard of care that we're, we're so used to is is difficult. It's all, every aspect of this is is just so, so difficult. Um, we've got high levels of staff sickness. So the staff that are on site are just under huge amounts of pressure. Um, and, you know, we've only been doing it for two weeks. And, you know, we're all at breaking point already. But you've got no no other option but to, to, to carry on and, and just get through it so so are um, you are you processing the reality of the impact on health workers globally so i saw again look sorry mate but 
I've got to ask you this. I saw a report yesterday that just doctors alone in Italy, so far 51 have died. There is a reality that every day you go into work that you don't know personally if you're going to get sick or your colleagues are going to get sick and what's going to happen to them. You're doing a job now, which is like a wartime job where you're actually risking your life. Your colleagues are risking your life. Do you have time to process this? Are people thinking about this? Is it impacting on how people even can do their job? Like, how are you dealing with that side of things? Yeah, um, it's it's hard. I mean, if you if you stop and think about it for too long, you you just wonder what 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 the hell am I doing? I'm you know, I'm putting my own life at risk. None of us signed up to to you know potentially potentially die from doing this job. Um, yeah, and if if you if you stop and think, you you just question yourself. You know, is is it worth it? You know, putting your life at risk, um, putting your family's emotional state at risk. But what can you do? We 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 have no other option here but to do this. Um, and and that's the feeling on the ground is that no matter how hard this is. I, I'm surrounded by some amazing people when I walk into that hospital who are, sorry, I'm breaking up a bit here, but um, can you just give me a moment, Pete? Yeah, of course, man. Take your time. Sorry, mate. Um, yeah, um, I'm, I'm sound, surrounded by amazing people who are doing the most amazing thing. It's just hard, but you can't you can't do anything else. Listen, I don't want to push you too hard, but the reason I want you to do this is that one of the most important parts for me in my research as people fight over the models and the data and how real this is and how isn't it real, the just the flu crowd, the one benchmark I have used since Wuhan now with Italy, Madrid and here in the UK is the reports from the doctors which have been universally the same. This is why James, like this is why I messaged you this morning. I said I want to talk to you. So I'm I'm sorry yes. this is tough, and I'm sorry I'm asking tough questions, but but no. um, I have been fighting disinformation. I've got to ask some tough questions. And look, I also want to ask you, because this is the stuff other people don't know, so I just want to ask you a bit about the patient. Talk to me about the range. Very early on, this was believed to be a condition that mainly affects the old people, and obviously it affects older people more, but can you talk to me about the range of people coming in. And one thing I'm going to drop in there is I've seen the reports today, another 259 died. Of that, they said, uh, I saw a report the today that 13 were healthy adults. So yeah. can you talk to me about the range you've got coming in? Yep. Um, uh, we've got young people. We've got young people in. So um, uh, the youngest is uh, late 20s. Um, we've got lots on ventilators in their 40s who are... So some have very, very sort of mild diabetes, you know, mild high blood pressure. They're, these aren't unwell people. They, you know, have have jobs. They're active. Um, so we've got we've got people in their twenties, thirties, forties on ventilators. We've got another group of patients in their sixties, seventies who are probably, you know, carry a few more health conditions with them. And, you know, they are also on ventilators, but uh, this is not exclusively a disease 
uh, of the elderly, you know, uh, young people will die from this. Absolutely. Now, one thing I didn't know prior to this is that, or I didn't realize was the scale of the normal flu season. It just didn't cross my mind. I, I, I'm aware it happens. Yeah. Some people have posted information at me saying, well, a bunch of people die from flu every year. Children still die from flu every year. There is this just the flu crowd. How is this different? Yeah, we see flu. We see flu, uh, seasonal flu every year. Uh, and it's a severe disease uh, in its worst form. It, it looks a bit like COVID. But what we don't see with um, seasonal flu is um, 10 to 12 people needing to go onto ventilators a day for many days in a row, which overwhelms um, the health service. Um, uh, you know, th this is a disease where there's no immunity um, in the population and it's just striking people down as it sort of works its way through um, the population. So the, the scale of what we, we're seeing now is, is far, far worse than the worst um, flu seasons we've, we've 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 ever experienced. So um, you know the bad swine flu season, it, it, nothing like this, nothing like the the scale of, of 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 what we've got now. So yeah, yeah, flu is flu is a bad disease and it kills a lot of people. Um, but this is a whole different ball game. Okay, I'm conscious of the time, the time of night, and I want you to get home. So I'm gonna I'm gonna keep it just to another couple of questions. Um, yeah. And just kind of for some important closing questions, what are the main myths that you are seeing disseminated or perpetuated right now with regards to this? Um, the main myths. Um, yeah. Well, yep. Yeah, uh, a disease of the elderly, which, uh, as I've explained, no, uh, we're seeing young people get this. You know, you have to have health problems to 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 get this. No, no, you don't. Um, not so much a myth, but one of the biggest frustrations to all of us um, in the NHS is um, just just the lack of respect for social distancing and self isolating when necessary. Um, look, I, I'm no public health expert, but but there are there are people who who are, and they are telling us these things for a reason and the very reason is to 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 reduce the amount of people getting severe di disease and overwhelming us which is what it feels like right now for me is that we're, we're overwhelmed and we just need people not to get this disease and the only way they're going to do that is by by staying at home and and not you know not going to the pub or to restaurants which obviously you can't do now but um you know people need to respect the rules that are in place i think they are there for a reason and the reason is to, to sort of keep people alive essentially so i was aware we were going to record tonight and i tried to observe my standard day and a couple of things that stood out to me today i got a couple of deliveries from amazon ironically face masks and gloves and the Amazon yeah. driver wasn't wasn't the delivery driver wasn't wearing gloves himself or a mask. And then I also went to Sainsbury's. And what was quite interesting is they were staggering the people who came in, but hardly anyone was wearing masks. Mask. Hardly anyone was wearing gloves. So anyone could be going into somewhere like supermarket and easily spreading. And I've also read the reports that it spreads easily inside. If the supermarket is the place that everyone has to keep using, and that is a central focus of like congregation of people and people touching things and moving things on conveyor belts and such, 
Is there any advice you can give to people in doing that, in, in, in that experience, in that day-to-day experience, the things that you think people should absolutely be doing right now? That's a, that's a tough one. I think you, 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 you got to be pragmatic as well. So, uh-huh. you, you, you know, people have got to live, people have got to get food. Um, you've got to be sensible though, haven't you? You, 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 sh- you know, you should try and go as infrequently as possible. You know, you've got to try and keep distance from people, but it, it's hard when you're, you're out and about if you're doing essential tasks. Should you wear masks? I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not a public health expert and I don't want to, I don't want to advise on, on something that, you know, I don't have a sound enough knowledge on, but I think sensible pragmatism is, is what's needed. Um, you know, just, just try and plan your life so that you, you can spend as much time as possible at home and not, you know, not in the supermarket, if at all possible. Whether where the supermarkets can up their sort of online delivery um, capacity, I, I, I don't know. Um, but that, that, those types of things would make sense to me. Okay, I saw a somebody forwarded me a video. It was a radio calling by another doctor, Dr. Jack, and he was very angry. He called into LBC, and one of the things he was very angry about was people not respecting social distancing, not understanding. My assumption, though, is there is a massive disconnect between what he is seeing day to day in the hospital, and then what what people the perception people have of how serious this is. How, can you think of any way we can bridge that gap? Is this conversation we're having now, is this good enough to bridge that gap? Do you think we need reporting from with, with inside the hospital so people understand? Do, do you have an opinion on this? Yeah, I think human stories always help. And um, I've listened to that Dr. Jack interview and, you know, um, just, just, just news from the front line, I think, helps. And I don't know if this is going to help or not, but this is our experience. You know, we're being we're being overwhelmed, and it's not a pretty sight. Um, so I, I hope that more people come forward um, and uh, and talk about their experience. You know, I I, I saw uh, a, a YouTube clip of um, I think Sky News got into one of the hospitals in Lombardy, um, and and it was powerful because actually that's sort of looks what what our hospital looks like now so if you got a news team uh, into our into our um, ICU and onto our wards i'm sure i'm sure that would be a pretty powerful message you know that this isn't happening in china or italy or this is happening right here right now um in the uk um so yeah i mean i mean get get the cameras in and and show the people what's happening all right man listen dude I love you, man, for everything you're doing. I think you yeah, should thanks, know man. that every, everyone knows that, not just you, all health workers are doing an amazing job, that you put yourself in harm's way. I really appreciate you giving me the time because I know your evenings are limited now with your family. Is there any anything like you want to close out on, any final things you want to say? Anything I've not asked that you wish I'd asked? Um, not, not really. Just that there are some really amazing people out there doing a really hard job, um, and they're, they're absolute heroes. Um, you know, the, the nurses that are looking after these these people. You know, the cleaners, the porters. You know, um, the canteen stuff. That these guys are heroes, um, absolute heroes. You know, and when this is all over, you know, I just, I just hope that people still keep keep them in their minds, and you know. Um, you know, and I just hope that sort of 
you know, uh, NHS bosses can start to treat their staff with just a little bit more respect. Um, I know Dr. Jack said this, but I'm going to I'm going to um, reinforce what he says. But, you know, NHS staff don't don't want the world. But what, what they would like is to not have to pay ludicrous amounts of money to park their car at work, you know, not have to buy their own Christmas dinner, um, not have their coffee and tea taken away from their departments just to say, you know a few hundred pounds um just 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 treat us with a bit of respect and um you know we're, we're willing to put ourselves out there um so you know i just i just hope that when it's all finished um you know people remember uh what what we've been through um yeah that's all i've got to say really oh man listen look take care Give the give the best to your wife and, and your family. Um, love what you're doing. Really appreciate it from my family. Stay in touch. Keep me updated on what's going on. Um, I'm, I am not going to stop thinking about you through this process. Uh, when I do get a chance to buy you a beer afterwards, um, yeah, I'd love to have a proper catch up with you. But take care, buddy. I really do appreciate this, man. And keep keep fighting hard. Yeah. Thanks, Pete. Cheers. Take care. Thank you for listening to Defiance. I hope this interview with Dr. James was helpful for you. I also really appreciate him sharing his experience during this crisis. I think these frontline medical staff are a fucking hero, to be honest. They're risking their lives every day dealing with this crisis. I know some people are going to continue to fight over the government reaction and the models. Fine. I think we won't understand fully what this crisis was, is for a few months now. It's clearly going to get a lot worse in Europe and the US in the short term and we know that as brutal as it is some of the workers heading every day into the hospitals are not going to survive this. Some are going to get sick and some are going to die. This is very sad but this is the brutal reality of what is happening right now and I think it's very very important to hear from these staff and these people working in this situation. If you've got any questions about this do feel free to reach out to me. My email address is peter at defiance.news and yes thank you for checking out the show and yeah reach out to me any questions just uh yeah drop me a line take care and stay safe everyone out there both physically and mentally these are very very strange times